I was preaching in Maryland about three weeks ago doing a series of revival meetings uh, in the area of biblical eschatology. In one of my talks, I spoke on the wonders of heaven as recorded in the scripture and how God gives us the beautiful hope of the resurrection and especially in a resurrected body. I didn't realize that in the audience there was uh, a man who was crippled. He was disabled. And after the message, he came and he talked to me. Uh, He encouraged me by saying how blessed he was by the message. And I asked him what part of the message was he blessed with. He said, I was renewed in my spirit when I realized that my crippled state is only but a temporary form. And that one day for all eternity, I will have a resurrected body with full use of my limbs. And for us who are not disabled, we would not understand fully the anticipation that that man has for a physical transformation. And then uh, two weeks later, I had the opportunity to come down to Texas to speak. And uh, by doing so, was able to visit my father. Thank you very much for praying for Dr. Tan uh, as he had a total knee replacement. And I watched how a man of 77 years of age uh, was learning how to walk for the first time again, learning how to bend his knee uh, in physical therapy. And as I talked with him and spent time with him, uh, he would lament at times why at a man his age, he has to undergo something like this. Again, encouraged him using the hope of the transformation that we all experience when Christ comes again. But these two incidents reminded me again that the hope and the purpose of our present life is not in the sinful state of this present life, but in the reality of who we are and what we have in Jesus Christ, the hope of a transformation. When we've had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, The one thing that will mark all of our lives is transformation, whether that occurs physically or spiritually. Our physical transformation will occur at the rapture when we will have our resurrected bodies. But our spiritual transformation begins immediately when the Holy Spirit comes into our life and God makes us a new creation. You see, my friends, the evidence of a true encounter with Jesus Christ is the transformation of the way we live our life. And so as we conclude our sermon series entitled First Encounter, we've been looking at various characteristics that should be evidenced with each person who has had a true encounter with Jesus Christ. And there is a review of our sermon series printed in your bulletin this morning. As we conclude this series, we will be looking at the characteristic of transformation. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, as we exposit verses 1 to 13. Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 to 13. If you're new to the Bible, uh, Matthew is the first book of the Gospel, the first book of the New Testament. It's about uh, two-thirds through your Bible. And from these 13 verses, we will draw out three principles as it relates to our transformation in Jesus Christ. Matthew, chapter 17 Verses 1 to 13, verses 1 and 2 read this. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. 
Now, the setting of this passage is that Jesus takes his inner circle disciples, Peter, John, and James, to a high mountain. Some say it is Mount Tabor. Others say it is Mount Hermon. And there he reveals himself in all of the glory that he is the divine Son of God. Because Jesus is God himself. It's interesting that this is the only display of divine glory as recorded in the life of Christ in the four Gospels. You see, when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself, took on incarnate form, that means He took on bodily form, Jesus Christ never stopped becoming God. But His disciples and those who were observing His ministry up to this point had only seen Jesus in His humanity. Even Jesus, having performed many miracles and walking on water, He still looked very much like a man. But on this special and spectacular event, Jesus Christ looked like God. He's shown in all of His glory. And His three disciples in His inner circle saw this. Now, why did this occur? We're not told explicitly in the Scriptures why God would reveal His divine glory. But perhaps the disciples needed a shot in the arm. Perhaps they had seen Jesus in His humanity and His humanness and perhaps began to take Him for granted. You know, there's a saying that familiarity breeds contempt. And they'd seen Jesus, and perhaps they realized, you know what? He's just like me. I can argue with him. I don't have to take all that he says with great weight. But Jesus wanted to show that he is the Son of God. He is God himself. And he showed these three disciples the, the glory of his divine self. And that impact drove home. And that was the purpose of the incarnation, uh, of the transfiguration. Such an impact in the life of these three that when John wrote his gospel in John chapter 1 verse 14, he writes, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only as he began the book of John. I've seen the glory of Jesus. He is the one and only. There is no one like him. Peter writes of it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. The three who witnessed this transfiguration of our Lord bore witness to it to the other disciples after the resurrection and to the countless millions throughout the generations and the centuries. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself, revealed in this transfiguration in all of His divine glory. For the disciples, a preview of His coming glorification at His death and resurrection. For us, a reminder that the next time we see Jesus, it will be when He comes in His full glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. Rightfully, the disciples were in awe. They, they, they were scared, scared speechless. The gospel account in Mark chapter 9, verse 6 tells us the glory of God had been seen. Now, how does this relate to us? The Bible uses the word transfigured. The verb is metamorpho, where we get our English word metamorphosis. And if you've gone through biology, elementary biology, you understand that metamorphosis is often describing the process specifically for when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. 
This verb, metamorpho, is the same verse used on two other occasions in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, when it speaks of the believer's transformation when he accepts Christ. The spiritual transformation that occurs in each one of us when we've had a personal experience by placing our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. There is that same transformation. When Jesus Christ was transfigured, he showed the disciples the glory of God. In a similar way, when we are transformed by the Spirit, we bring glory to God. And therein lies our first principle, if you're taking notes, number one. Our transformation brings glory to God. Our transformation brings glory to God. My friends, when our life changes, it brings glory to God. To the one who's died in our place, the one who's saved us from eternal damnation, are you willing to change your life so that you can glorify God with your life? You know, there are a lot of people I meet who wander aimlessly in this world. They're looking for a purpose. They range from very wealthy businessmen to very successful academics. They're looking for purpose. They've reached the highest attainment that this world can give them, and yet there is no satisfaction in their soul. And so they wander aimlessly, wasting their life trying to find a purpose. Let me tell you, my friends, your purpose and my purpose here on this earth is to glorify God with our transformed life. The purpose of the life we live is to glorify God with our transformed life. What that transformation looks like is up to you and your willingness to submit to the prompting of the Spirit. You see, the greater transformation, the greater change in you, the more exciting adventure we call life. But if you're not willing to change... If you're not willing to be transformed by the Holy Spirit, then you're going to live like the rest of the world who are aimlessly walking around looking for purpose. Your job and my job is to impact this world by making them surprised by how we lived our life for Jesus Christ. That's where the excitement comes from. When the world stops and says, Whoa, why did you do that? This is how I would have reacted. But something is different with you. That's where excitement in life comes from. The adventure of a life lived for the glory of God through a transformation in our life. I came across an article written by Jeannie Allen entitled, Left the Ministry. Uh, Here she was writing about her pastor husband who had a change in his career She described her husband as one who loves God and loves to give him away. She describes her husband as one who walked with God so intimately. He had such fullness of God that he could not wait to give him out. And so as they were looking for a place to minister, this man who had so much of God and loved to give him away looked for a spot on earth that didn't have a lot of God because he had a lot of God to give out. And they looked and they prayed and they found that place in Austin, Texas. The capital of Texas, a city that she describes 
that loves live music and loves tacos more than they love God. And I've been there, and that's true. And so, for a man who loves God and, and loves to give him away to go to a place that didn't have much of God, they moved there. And they started a community. And they began to turn into a church. And it thrived, and many people came as her husband began to shower upon them the love of God. But it came time that this community had grown to a place that there was a lot of people who loved God. And there were still many places in the world that didn't have much of God. And for a man who loved God and loved to give him away, it was time for him to move on. And so he left the church in good hands and he realized that no bigger a place than corporate America to be a place that didn't have much of God. And so if you were to meet the husband of Jeannie Allen, you would meet one who is starting companies instead of starting churches. Nothing wrong with that. But if you were to meet him, you would find a man who would continue to pastor you because he loved people and he had so much of God that he could not but give it away. He doesn't need the title of a pastor of a church. He never needed a title and neither do you. You don't need a title to give away the love of God. If you so contain Jesus in your life, so full of a relationship with him, then you are compelled to spread out and fill this earth with his love. And some of you will do so through building companies, working at a bank, working in construction. Some of you will do so by building churches as a minister, as a missionary. Some of you will do so through, a, through being a teacher, teaching kindergarten or, or high school or college. Some of you will do so by learning to love your family, raising up your children, loving your coworkers, your colleagues. So much of Jesus, you cannot but give him away. You don't need a title. You don't need a position. You carry the title of Christian. And that phrase, that title comes with it, the standing that you have a life that is transformed to be lived out for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Love God. Be so full of Him and give Him away. We don't need to complicate things. Love God and give Him away. Our transformation brings glory to God. Would you find purpose in life by doing so? Would you love God with a passion so radically transformed by what he's done for you that you can go to any place and in any situation and amongst any spheres of influence, you cannot help but give God's love to them. Our transformation brings glory to God. Look at verse 3. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. The next thing the disciples see are two of the greatest figures in the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah, perhaps representing the totality of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. What in the world were they talking about? Well, the gospel account in Matthew doesn't tell us, but Luke chapter 9 verse 31 tells us what they were talking about. They were talking about Jesus' impending death. 
about how you had to die on the cross in Jerusalem. I want you to imagine this. In the revelation of the divine glory of Jesus Christ, God Himself, the subject matter was about how He could save the world. If that doesn't move you, I don't know what will. How He would have to take on the sins of the world that He who knew no sin would become sin for us. The very disciples in front of them who were falling asleep. I don't know what Moses and Elijah were there doing. Perhaps they were encouraging Jesus, rallying Him on, affirming. But then classic Peter comes out, and we talked about Peter a few weeks ago. Look at verse 4. Then Peter answered... It's interesting, no one asked him a question, but he answered anyways. And he said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, three booths, three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter, the one who speaks before he thinks, says, Lord... You didn't ask me, but I'm going to tell you, it is good to be here. As if Jesus needed Peter's approval. If Jesus were to make a sarcastic statement, oh, no, he would not. Oh, thank you, Peter. I'm glad you feel so good here. That's why I brought you here. It is good to be here. And Peter suggests that him and his two mates would build some tents for the three. He, he wants to be in that condition, in, in, in the glorified state of Jesus, to be there. And that, that's good on his behalf. But perhaps a bit flippantly, he says, you know what, I'll build three tents. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. All three equal. Before Peter could continue to put, place foot in mouth, verse 5, did you ever read the first part of verse 5? While he was still speaking, God the Father comes to the rescue before Peter says any more things that would be inappropriate. While Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. God the Father speaks and in a boom voice, this is my son. The authority of my son supersedes that of Moses and of Elijah. You do not make them equal, Peter. This is the son of God. This is God himself. In him I am pleased. And the command, hear him. Listen to him. In case there was a total lack of understanding, Jesus, oh, who Jesus was, God the Father identifies Jesus as His divine Son, God Himself. In Jesus laid all the authority of God to speak and to be heard and to be followed. What a good reminder for the three disciples that Jesus is to be honored, He's to be respected. He has all authority and he's to be listened to. 
But this is a great reminder even to us in our generation today. It's a good reminder that Jesus Christ has the authority. And what he says about how we are to live our life, we are to listen with an ear towards obedience. You see, the problem of our generation today is we live in a God is my buddy generation. We want to make God so accessible to the new generation, a contemporary generation, that we have belittled God so that he's but a peer. He's a buddy. I, I can put my hand around him. I, I can manage him. And so if I need him, I'll call him over. If I don't need him, I can push him away. That's the God is my buddy generation. That's who he is. His commands are but suggestions for how I live my life. And that's why our generation, young and old, have lost a bit of respect for who the Son of God is. And so, my friends, you've got to ask yourself the question, who is Jesus to me? The one who saved you? The one who redeemed you? The one who is the creator? The one who holds your life in his hands? And then, what he says about how you are to live your life, will you listen to him? You see, the response of your transformation is to live lives of obedience. And herein lies our second principle, number two. Our transformation centers on our obedience. Our transformation centers on our obedience. You know, a lot of people ask me, Pastor, how do I become a better person? What does transformation look like? How then shall I then live after I accepted Christ? The answer is simple. You begin to live a life of obedience. Your transformation and my transformation is centered on obedience to the word of God. Transformation doesn't mean we quit our jobs the next day. It doesn't mean we sell our homes and jump on the mission field. It doesn't mean we reject all of our friends. It means we start to obey the principles of the scriptures, the commands of our Savior in how we are to live. And that is why it is important to read the Bible, so that you will know what God expects you are to live your life, how you are to live your life. If you are not reading the Bible regularly, then there is no true transformation in your life because your life is not defined by being better according to what you think is being better. But being and cultivating a life of transformation is a better life according to the Word of God lived out through obedience. I hope that makes sense. You see, a lot of us want to live a better life, a morally good life. Well, even the Buddhists do that. Even those of other religions want to live that sort of life. And so we think that by being a better Christian, we simply become a better person. Whatever that looks like, I don't know, it's nebulous. Whatever pops into your mind. No, my friends. A transformed life is centered on our obedience to the Word of God. And so you have to read it, and I have to read it to know what it has to say. It's not easy. It is hard to do so. Nothing tests your patience and your sanctification more than when you travel. 
I'm not going to tell you the stories of my 24-hour in the Washington, D.C. airport that very much tested my Christ-likeness. But I remember about 10 days ago, I was um, in L.A. at the airport LAX, and um, I was uh, given the privilege because of my status uh, to enter into a lounge, one of the business class lounge. And I uh, enjoy going to those lounges uh, just because it's quiet. I can get a lot of work done, uh, and they've got free food, uh, and, you know, it's, it's just a good place to be. And so I arrived a few hours earlier in my connecting flight and um, got a lot of, be- settled down and began to work and, and it was quiet, it was nice. Um, and then as the hours grew towards the late evening, that's when all the Asian airlines uh, fly to Asia. And so uh, the lounge became more and more crowded with uh, uh, these foreign passengers. And still it was very respectful and everyone uh, kept silent, respecting each other's space. And then there was a group of individuals who came into that lounge. And that group broke all silence. Uh, It was a large group from China. Now, I'm Chinese, so I can tell this story. A large group from mainland China comes in, and they're excited, and they're happy. And I don't think they were ever taught what an inside voice means uh, or a library voice. And they were in that lounge, and they were yelling across the, uh, the, the hallway, uh, hey, there's free food here, and everyone rushes there. And, and in this very large lounge, they picked my corner of the lounge to congregate in, where I had valued silence and solitude in preparation for the sermon I'm preaching this morning. I looked at them and gave them some stares, hoping that this nonverbal cue would uh, remind them that this is a quiet place. Uh, They just looked at me and smiled. Um, And so I thought, well, I need to be a bit more direct. And so I told them to shh, be quiet, shh. I didn't say that, I just said shh. They looked at me and they took the, the, the sound shh as if, hey, I can't hear you, talk louder. And that's what they did. Uh, those 30 minutes began to weigh on my Christ-likeness. And all the, the nature of who I am began to come out in my mind. I was here first. This is a quiet place. Don't you see the signs? This is a place of respite. And I thought in my mind, what can I do? What can I do? Well, I'm sorry, but my sinful self came out, and uh, I turned to them, and uh, uh, to their surprise, I spoke in Mandarin. I said to them, Ching, Anqing, please be quiet. Beatsway, shut your mouth. <laughs> they looked at me to the horror that, wow, he speaks our language. And, and so they quieted themselves and were hushing each other, but about 30 minutes into it, they'd forgotten, and again, the stories and the jovial spirits. In my mind, I said, I can't take this. I was here first. I've been here for two hours, and they just came in, and I thought to get them kicked out, I could just uh, go to the front and ask them to be escorted out, and that's when the Word of God speaks to you. It's always those times you don't ever want it to speak. It speaks to you And the very lesson I'm 
going to teach you this morning is the lesson he spoke to me. He said, hey now, Steve, their interaction with Jesus Christ may not come, it may only come through you. I said, God, don't put that guilt trip on me. Stephen, you know what you need to do. And in my mind, I was fighting with the Lord because I was here first. And I bet you they snuck in. I was, I'm here legally. And, and all this wrestling, this, this mental exercise of why I don't want to do what I realize I need to do. But then the spirit moved and I was brought into their shoes and thought to myself, you know what? Maybe for many of them, this was their first time to the U.S. They had never experienced Disneyland before. Uh, they're going to go home and uh, tell all their village friends and elders about what an amazing place America is. And who am I to curtail that exuberant spirit that they have? And so I packed up my things and I moved out of the lounge. You know, that takes a lot out of each of us. But what a wonderful lesson the Lord taught me. And here is that lesson. Sometimes transformation does not mean you cannot be frustrated. Transformation doesn't mean you can't get angry. Transformation does not mean you can't have a bad day and you can't be upset and you can't be frustrated. But transformation is the grace by which God gives you to be able to be a testimony through obedience so that you will have the privilege of bringing glory to the name of God. And that's hard to live out because we all have our rights and we all want certain things. But a transformed life is one who is sensitive to the grace of God in our life and to then extend it to others through a living testimony, through obedience to the Word of God to bring opportunity to give God's name the glory He deserves. I'm sure I could have gotten them kicked out. I'm sure I could have said things that were not very nice. They didn't know I was a pastor. But it doesn't matter what they know. Am I in my life, centered, if I say I'm transformed, centered on obedience to what the Word of God says. This is my purpose in life, and this is yours as well. Verse 6 to 9. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The compassion of Jesus, he touched them in love and says, do not be afraid. And then this transfiguration event is over. Verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. 
Jesus warns them not to tell anybody until after his resurrection so that God's purpose would be accomplished without the fanfare this event would have caused. Verse 10 to 13, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer in their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. The disciples asked Jesus about this prophesied coming of a forerunner. Because they knew that with the coming of a forerunner, there would be the coming of the promised kingdom. And Jesus affirms this truth by quoting from Malachi chapter 4. But then he changes the subject to speak about his impending death. You see, before Jesus Christ can be glorified and in the millennium, his kingdom, he must suffer and he must be broken the glorification of Jesus Christ. And if you're interested about this subject, go read his high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John. The Son of Man must suffer and be broken before he can be glorified. In the same way, before we can experience glorification in Christ Jesus, we must be broken ourselves. We must humbly admit that we are sinners deserving of death and in need of a Savior. Until we can come to terms with our brokenness, we will never experience true transformation. And herein lies our third principle, number three. Our transformation comes out of our brokenness. Our transformation comes out of our brokenness. Both the brokenness of Jesus Christ, when He stretched out His hands and He died on Calvary, his brokenness gave us salvation because our transformation comes out of brokenness, the brokenness of Jesus. And then also the brokenness of ourselves. Unless we are willing to be humbled and, and broken, change will never happen. Because my friends, if you sit this morning in the pews here thinking you are perfect, better than the person next to you, better than your family and friends, that this message does not apply to me, that I'm living a good life, a better life, a pretty good life, then there is no need for transformation because I'm already perfect. A few changes here, a few changes there, that's all. God's pretty happy with me. Is he? True transformation comes out of brokenness. Our brokenness. Unless we're willing to humble ourselves, to die to ourselves, to give up our rights. And that's a hard one for me. You know my story. I was a proud young man. And unless God broke me and tore me apart to build me as he saw fit, and if I didn't allow that, then I would not be standing here this morning. You will never understand truth transformation unless you have first been broken. It is in our brokenness that the transforming power of Jesus Christ is made evident in our life. Are you humble enough to be broken? 
It's a tough thing to do. We will be asked to change. We will be asked to give up being angry all the time. We will be asked to give up certain aspect of our life that does not please God. We will be asked not to always demand what we want. But it is in that brokenness and that willingness to be broken that you will understand and experience the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Why is transformation important? Why am I hitting this so hard? Because unless we are transformed, we become irrelevant. If this is a church that never changes, if this is a church that does not change, then we will not be relevant to the community. If the people of this church never change or refuse to change, then we ourselves become irrelevant. Yes, we'll go to heaven, but God can't really use us. From 1900 to 1967, the Swiss were the leading watchmakers in the world. You know, you know the brands, Rolex and so forth. In 1967, there came out the first patent on digital clock watch technology. The Swiss had this patent, but they rejected it in favor of the traditional ball bearings and gears and, and springs that they had been using to make watches for decades and centuries. Unfortunately, however, the world in 1967 was ready for this advancement. And this digital technology patent was picked up by a Japanese company called Seiko. And if you lived in that era, I didn't, or the years to come, Many of you had those calculator Seiko watches. Some of you are still wearing them. But they picked up the digital patent, and they overnight became the leading watchmaker manufacturer in the world, literally overnight. What happened was 50,000 of the 67,000 Swiss watchmakers went out of business because they had refused to embrace change of this new technology. It was not until years later that the Swiss realized they needed to change and change caught up to them and they began to regain their position in the marketplace when they came out with the creation of what we call the Swatch watches, if you remember that, in the 80s. So many Christians are going out of business because they've never experienced the transforming work of Jesus Christ in their life. They have become irrelevant. I hope that will not be the case for each and every one of you, and it will not be the case for this church. We hold on to that which is right and which is correct, but we need to change the areas of our life that need to change so that we can be relevant and we can be used mightily by God because that is the purpose of our life, to glorify God with our transformed life centered in our obedience to his word, foundationed in the brokenness of who we are. It is then that you will experience the adventure we call life. I conclude this morning with a blessing uh, that was given to me in North Carolina. And I extend this blessing to you. It is a call 
to transformation. May you hear the whisper of God's fatherly voice guiding you to hold on to the spirit of fellowship and the oneness of our family of faith. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, discomfort with half-truths and superficial relationships so that you will live deeply and from the heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and the exploitation of people so that you will work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those that mourn so that you will reach out your hands to them and turn their mourning into joy. May God bless you with just enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you will do those things that others say cannot be done. And may you know the love, joy, and freedom that is your inheritance as the children of the living God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the principles that have touched my life and called me to attention. May this church rise up, each member of the church, to live out a genuine transformed life. A life lived for your glory, centered on our obedience to your word, foundationed upon our brokenness, the brokenness of Christ on the cross, which enables us to have salvation and hope and purpose and joy. It's not easy, Lord, to change, but we want to be relevant. We want to live an exciting, adventurous life for your glory's sake. And so challenge each and every one of us this morning to leave here wanting to examine our life, areas that we want to change. Bless your people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.